0: Okay, so as Nick said, we are in the middle of this series called Ask London, and as Nick already alluded to, our heart as a church is to listen to and engage with the questions and the objections and the thoughts that our friends and mates and family and so on have about the Christian faith. So without further ado, this is week five. Let's see what we're going to be engaging with this morning and roll the video. I believe that the universe was made about 13.7 billion years ago and that the Earth was made about 5 billion years ago. Where, where do the whole Adam and Eve story, then the dinosaurs and then Jesus like, roaming in the Earth? Where does it all fit into the actual story? I don't mind it? the creation narrative. I, I think it's quite nice. Where does God come from? It, it feels like a human way of describing something that at the time a human didn't know how to describe. Seven days of creation he rested on the seventh day like why would an infinite being be bothered with days behind me you will see a plate and on that plate we're going to grow some bacteria but the bacteria will be growing alongside some antibiotic. You made God. and why would god need a day's rest he's been there since before the beginning of time the bacteria have mutated this means the dna has actually physically changed this is evolution like i said before our eyes So how much of it is um, a story that represents something and how much of it is supposed to be a fact, as in this happened, this is a fact. Some good questions, eh? Some good points and some good objections. Uh, we're really grateful, aren't we, as a church, to people who've taken the trouble to put these thoughts, questions, to video, in some cases, to give us presentations on interactive whiteboards. I think it takes no little courage and honesty to, to really put some of these things to, to camera, so we're really grateful. Indeed, if you are here this morning to particularly investigate this question this morning, uh, then we're really glad that you're here, and thank you for taking the time to, to do so. I guess, as you would have heard from that montage eclipse, there wasn't really a specific objection coming through. More, uh, I guess, a series of thoughts. I think it's probably best summarized by saying, how do creation and science fit together? I think that's the kind of tone that was coming through. Or to put it a different way, what does the biblical account of creation really mean? And does it fit with what we know about the universe? I think that's a fair representation of what was coming through in those comments So you may have seen recently, perhaps, if you've been following the news, you may have seen the uh, Rosetta spacecraft's mission that came to an end recently. If You might have spotted that in the news. So Rosetta, the spacecraft, spent 12 years tracking this comet, uh, to try and find out loads and loads of things, really, about how the Earth was formed. And scientists are hugely excited about all the information and data that it's generated for them. And as you'd have seen, rather dramatically, the mission came to an end about 10 days ago when Rosetta, in a planned way, uh, basically crash-landed into um, the comet, and that was the end of that. And scientists are incredibly excited about all the data they reckon this will have generated. And one European space agency scientist put it like this. That she said, it helps us answer the big questions of how we got here and why we're here. And I think they are, they are big questions, aren't they? They're questions I think all of us at some point will probably ask in different ways, at least. Whether it's because you're observing a billion pound spacecraft mission like Rosetta, or maybe it's in that moment where you're looking out across an amazing scenery of mountain range, perhaps, or in the moment when a new child is born. Or maybe in that more surprising moment that just kind of sneaks up on you when you're on your way to work for the umpteenth time, that just moment just sneaks up on you and you ask something like, why am I here? Or how did we get here? I think they're questions that we all ask. I think the Bible meets that desire that we have to know the answers to those questions. And the Bible wants us to ask those questions. And it wants us, I think, to really look for different layers and levels of explanations to those questions. And the layers and levels of explanations for those questions like that is important to recognize. What do I mean by that? Well, let's say today you were given a present, a gift, and you unwrapped it, and inside, the, inside there's a machine. Now, depending on your personality, some of us might ask, how does this work? Or, or like, how do all the parts work together? It should be a great question to ask. And I think exploration of that question will probably lead you to ask and help you to answer another bigger question, which would be, who gave it to me? Why was I given it? These are great questions to ask, and they do come in different layers and levels of explanations. And it's my contention this morning that the Bible and science are both really helpful and indeed not necessarily incompatible in helping us to find, as it were, different levels of explanation, to these big questions of why is is we're here and how we got here. So I'm, I'm no scientist. I'm no expert at all. Uh, some of you might be thinking science isn't really my thing. Others of you are like, finally, we've got some science uh, and not a sporting or artistic illustration. But wherever you're at this morning, let's just try and get into some of the stuff because these are big questions to ask. How, how do we get here? Why are we here? And to that end, I'm going to ask four questions along the how and the why and the who line. So question one will be, how did God come to be? We'll just sort that one in a couple of minutes. Secondly, how do we interpret Scripture, and particularly Genesis 1 and 2? Thirdly, what does this tell us about the age of the earth and the beginning of life? Fourthly, we'll ask these perhaps even bigger questions of the why and indeed the who. Okay, so question one, how did God come to be? Or as one of the video contributors said rather poetically, who made God? Which is a great question to ask. People have been asking this question for centuries. Scientists have been asking these questions. And Richard Dawkins is a scientist, and he too is asking this question. In fact, he uses it as a challenge in his famous book, The God Delusion. Dawkins brings the challenge and says, if you want to believe in a creator, then you've got to ask who created the creator. I guess that's kind of what was partly coming through in the video. Just two quick responses to that. One is this. By asking the question, who created God, you are by definition thinking of a created God. Yeah? And the ancient world, of course, was very familiar with the idea of created gods. People who would give their worship or their obedience to the sea or to statues or to stars. But in the context of the Bible, a a monotheistic religion like that of the ancient Hebrews was specifically challenging that worldview and saying, no, 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 there is one Eternal, uncreated being who has created all things. Secondly, to ask a question like who created God is to assume that God would have to be limited, like we are, to time and space. Have I just caught myself on something? Thank you. Jamie's setting traps for me. I'll just move that out of the way so I can continue to get excited and move around. Uh, Yeah, so my point is, I I guess, thinking about being limited to time and space, just as Richard Dawkins was not limited to the work that he created, he was not constrained by his book in that sense or trapped within it. So a creator God, surely he too would naturally exist outside of his created work, which I guess in his sense is time and space and matter and material and so on that kind of god would have to be eternal in that sense do you see he would have to exist he wouldn't be he would not be bound by that which he'd created and surely any god would be like that the ultimate god if there is an ultimate being he or it would have to not be created have to be eternal in that sense so question 2 this morning How do we interpret Scripture, and particularly Genesis 1 and 2, the seven-day account of creation? How do we go about doing that? Well, imagine that you were asked this morning, those of you who are scribbling away, imagine that you were asked to write an account of the best day of this year. And imagine again that the best day of this year was a particular day on holiday. And that day was where you were sat on the beach and you watched dolphins playing in the sea with the sun setting over the ocean, Okay. That was your best day of this year. Go there in your mind's eye. And now imagine that you write that description. Let's say in 100 years' time, people want to know about how people lived in 21st century Western society, and this is going to be a recorder for posterity. So you may write down a narrative account of your best day of 2016. You might provide the facts. You might say, in April, we sat in Madagascar on the beach and we watched the dolphins swimming in the sea and the sunset above the Indian Ocean. Or if you're of a more poetical uh, disposition, you might describe it differently. You might say, this year we watched the dolphins waltzing in the sea and the sun dipped into the Indian Ocean. And in a 100 years' time, when people read that account, I think they would know the type of writing they were reading. They'd recognize the second account as more poetic. And so they would know that the dolphins didn't do an actual waltz, they would know that the sun actually the dolphins are actually 150, km, 150 million kilometers away from the sun, not right in front of it, and they 'd know the sun didn 't physically dip into the ocean. But the point is that we do understand reality don 't we, from these kinds of descriptions. In fact, you could argue that imagery helps us understand what happened and what it was like to experience it, because we recognize the genre that we're reading. Like different authors will communicate in different ways to different audiences. And in that sense, that's how we need to look at the Bible. And indeed, any ancient literature, we need to understand what the audience is, what the author's trying to communicate and what genre they're using. Because the Bible's got loads of different genres. It's got poetry and law and historical narrative and prophecy and song and parable, all kinds of different genres. And they mean different things according to their genre. So like in the book of Acts... Luke is telling us he believes history. He, said he is writing a historical account to a, a, a Roman official called Theophilus in AD 62 to help Theophilus understand how the Christian church began. Certain type of writing. In the book of Song of Songs, Solomon's writing poetry about love and romantic love between two lovers. Very different. Now, we understand what Solomon means literally. We get his meaning literally, which is that God's created sex for two married people to enjoy but we don't, take lit- we don't take it literally when, he's, when one of the lovers says that his lover's hair is a flock of goats tumbling down the slope. Don't take that literally. Forget the meaning literally. So understanding of genre and intention of author is really key to understanding scripture. So with that framework, that lens in mind, then we look at Genesis 1 and 2, the seven-day account specifically. Now, Slight disclaimer here. Lots of Christians understand different things by uh, what these two chapters say. And I think it's fair to say, unfortunately, some Christians get very agitated about what some of these things say and have made it a central issue. And I don't think it necessarily is. In fact, just chatting to a mate of mine last night, he's not a Christian. He's kind of put off by the fact that Christians seem to get so agitated and disagree so much about what the Genesis account means. Let me say this. What is clear to me is that Genesis is not in the genre of a scientific textbook. That's not what it's meant to be. We don't teach chemistry or algebra, as it were, from the Bible. But it does help us understand some of these how questions of how things came to be, and it provides that additional level of explanation as to the why and the who. So with that in mind, let me put forward what I think is a credible interpretation of the Genesis creation account. Now, contrary to popular belief, there are a number of very, very credible scientists who are Christians, a number of them, not least two men, Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins, who's a very well-known, internationally renowned geneticist and leader of the Human Genome Project and recently was working for the American government, and John Lennox uh, is an Irishman, he's a professor of maths at Oxford and and a, a fellow in philosophy and maths at Oxford as well bright, highly credible, highly well-respected scientists. And you can see some of their books on the screen behind me. And I'll leave that up there, because if you want to scribble down some references or take a picture, I haven't read all of those books, but I've read some and some of them. And I would really recommend them as brilliant resources if you want to explore this stuff a little bit more deeply than I'm able to go into now. So we'll leave that screen for a few moments. And both Collins and Lennox and others, others like that make the following four points when it comes to and the issue of the Genesis seven-day accounts. Now, I appreciate this is a little bit lectury in tone. It's a bit different for us from going through the Bible, but I hope you're able to uh, absorb this. Four points that I think people like Collins and uh, Lennox would make about the Genesis seven-day account. One, that within the Genesis one and two account, it appears there may well be different genres at play within those two chapters, both poetry and narrative taking place. Two, the idea of the seven days of creation being a literal seven, 24-hour period of time, which some sincere believers do hold to, does seem to be incompatible with our knowledge of the universe's age and of how living organisms work. Three, they point out something very interesting from the first two verses of Genesis, of the whole Bible. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. We're going to be in Genesis a little bit if you have your Bibles open. And the first two verses say this. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And they point out that before the first day of creation takes place in verse 3, creation itself seems to be underway beforehand. It's already happening before the first day is described. Interesting. And the fourth point they make surrounds the use of this word day in the text. And it seems, stay with me here, there are four different ways that the word day is used in the text. First way is in verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So can you see there that day is being used to describe light in comparison to darkness. Light is day, darkness is night. So it's l- day means light as in daytime, which would be less than 24 hours, wouldn't it? second different way day is used is in verse five. The verse concludes. Verse five concludes by saying, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So here now you've got day being used to describe evening and morning together, which probably would have been read as a 24-hour period of time. So already day is being used in two different senses within the text. And then thirdly, in chapter 2 and verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And the point here is that this period of time, the seventh day, could be said to still be existing because on the seventh day god rested from his creating work and in that sense he's been resting ever since he ceased creating and has been resting ever since which is a very very long period of time now god didn't stop being active in the world he's continued to to be drawing mankind to himself ever since that's his work of redemption theologians say but he has rested and permanently rested from the work of creation which is a very long period of time now little Pit stop here. One of the gentlemen who uh, contributed so eloquently said, Why would an infinite being need to do that? Need to rest? I think, in simple terms, partly because God is giving his created beings a model for human flourishing of work and rest. That's partly why an infinite being would do that, to give his created beings a model for human flourishing. And then you've got a fourth and a final way in which the word day is used. It's in verse 4 of chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So can you see how day is being used now? It's being used in a different sense. It's being used in the same sense as me saying, in my great-grandmother's day, some women were denied the vote. I'm not referring to a 24-hour period of time. I'm referring to an era, a period of time, something much longer than 24 hours. So, What are we saying? We're saying that by looking at the text itself, we can see the word day is being used in four different ways to mean probably four different periods of time. So you can't actually, although Genesis is quite simple in some respects, it's also very sophisticated writing. And the the author is making a point through kind of a combination of poetic and narrative writing. He's making a clear point, most notably that it's it's God who is the creating, designing force behind the universe, which is a big challenge to the polytheistic worldview of the time. The idea that there were multiple created gods. And Genesis is challenging that and saying, no, the sun and the moon are not worthy of worship. It's the creator behind them who is. So... What have we said so far? We've said, number one, that we're not talking about a created God. The claim is that God is eternal, and actually, surely such a God would need to be. Secondly, we said, that the genre and in, we said that genre and intention are really key to understanding language generally, and particularly how we interpret Scripture and Genesis. And then thirdly, we're saying it does seem that God's creating work took place not in seven literal 24-hour days, but actually at different moments through various mechanisms in a very long period of time. Main question three. What else does that tell us about the age of the earth and the beginning of life? Well, firstly, the age of the earth. In reality, the Bible isn't that concerned with this question about the age of the earth. It does say some things about the age of human beings and the the age of generations of human beings, but not much more than that. Certainly not about the age of the earth. And given that the creation account is pointing towards some creating taking place before the first day, like we said, and given that the days themselves appear to be moments in time of different lengths at which God spoke and acted, then it seems to me that scientific and geological discoveries are not necessarily incompatible with the Genesis account. And as one of our contributors said... The universe is around 13.7 billion years old, it seems, and the earth around 5 billion years old. Another contributor, take one little pit stop, asked about dinosaurs. And it seems to me that this understanding of the age of the universe and the age of the earth um, sits comfortably with the fossil record of dinosaurs. And remember, given that the Bible is not supposed to be a science textbook, then we're not expecting it to give a detailed account of every single species that's ever lived since the beginning of time. But what about the forming of life? What does, the Bible, what does this account tell us about the forming of life? How did that work? Because some people say, well, if God is behind, if he's the designing agent behind the earth and human life, why would he wait so long? Why would he create a universe 13.7 billion years ago and then wait billions of years before creating the earth? Why would he do that? Well, it seems to me that if you're prepared to make step one, that there is an et- uh, eternal, transcendent, creating God, then step two isn't actually much of a leap because you just say, well, I guess he can do whatever he likes. That kind of God can do as he pleases. And also, step three, he probably would do things that are different to what me, a finite created being, would do. One of our contributors who happens to be a, a mate of mine raised the issue of evolution via his, uh, his brilliant demonstration. Now, I should say at this point that um, his primary point was actually about how uh, evolution allows for the mutation of bacteria and the consequent suffering that comes as a result of that. So in two weeks' time, as Nick said, we'll address this massive issue of suffering, and we'll try and get to grips with that. But firstly, let me just say this about evolution, because he was also getting at that, as to how do you reconcile evolution with a creation account. I know because I checked with him last night. Let me just say this about, about evolution. Three things. There are different types and degrees of evolution. You need to know what, what what are we talking about when we throw the word evolution out, because some biologists will talk in terms of microevolution and macroevolution and molecular evolution, and others will talk in different terminology. So it's helpful to know what are we actually talking about when we just use this word. We need to be aware of that second thing to be aware of is that no scientists, and no scientists who are Christians, as far as I can tell, deny that certain types and degrees of evolution absolutely do exist. So like the evolution accounts for biological um, diversity in every type of animal and species, for example. Or, as was pointed out in the video, how bacteria can mutate and viruses replicate and so on. That seems to be very clearly accepted. The third point to say, though, is that there is the, the difference comes for many scientists, not just Christian ones, but particularly Christian ones, when it comes to evolution being used in the sense of a worldview that says we can answer every question through this. That's where the, the challenge comes. And I think this is where Francis Collins, as I mentioned before, is really helpful. Now, fascinatingly, he through his very, very high-level, intricate scientific investigations, that was the mechanism through which he moved from an atheistic worldview to a Christian one. And I think he's really helpful. I think he's right, because he would reject the idea of evolution, not in any sense, but in the sense of believing that everything must have a natural cause and organic life is solely the product of random forces guided by no one. That, he would say, is, no, I don't go that far because the fine-tuning and the beauty and the creativity of nature point me towards a creator. I want to just drill that down one step further. What does he mean by that? Where is he getting his signs of a creating agent behind the forming of human life? Consider these four letters. A-G-T-C or T-G-C-A or G-A-C-T, any collection or form of those four letters. They're the four letters of the human genetic code. And they each represent one of the four chemicals that are placed in a precise order of 3.4 billion letters. It's like stamped onto every one of your human cells, what makes you a human being. And the question is... How did that word, how did that 3.4 billion letter word that is in perfect order from one through 3.4 billion, how did that come to be? So go back maybe to that moment on the beach. Basically you need a different way of thinking. Go back in your mind's eye to the beach, the dolphins waltzing in the sea as the sun dips into the Indian Ocean. Imagine that you carry on walking down the beach and you come across a number of letters written on the beach The letters spell out the word Kingston, it goes for like half a mile down the beach, K-I-N-G-S-T-O-N, written on the beach. Presumably you would ask yourself, how did this get here? Or who wrote that? Your conclusion might be purely chance and necessity. But surely I think you would infer, would you not, that an intelligent being wrote the word Kingston on the beach. Now the response to that kind of argument is no, no, no. You don't have to have a cause to the emergence of life, and the argument goes: as long as you, ha- you just have to have matter for long enough, and if you have matter for long enough, eventually matter will produce life, just by the, like, the laws of probability. That's how the argument goes. And people use the illustration of a monkey at a typewriter to illustrate that argument. I don't know if you've heard this one before, but so the argument goes: you put a monkey at a typewriter and let it just randomly type as it's able to do, and let it, let it do that for long enough, and eventually it will be able to type out the complete works of Shakespeare, just by random chance and typing, 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 typing. And you give him, give the monkey the 600 million years that it apparently took life to emerge, and eventually he'll get there. That's the way the argument goes. But somebody a lot cleverer than me kindly sort of ran the numbers to see whether that is indeed probable or even possible. And the numbers do make that look incredibly unlikely. So, so here's, here's how the numbers go. If you say the monkey's going to type at around about one stroke a second, seems reasonable, the monkey can sit there and probably just type at one stroke a second. And if you give him the 600 million years that it took life to emerge, and don't actually ask him to type out the complete works of Shakespeare, just see if he can type out one sentence from the complete works of Shakespeare. To be or not to be, that is the question. And if you run the numbers at this monkey typing one stroke a second, trying to type out one sentence purely by chance, it will take the monkey 12.6 trillion, trillion, trillion years to type out that one sentence of 30 letters. And the claim is that the 3.4 billion letters of the genetic code took place or were typed out by chance over 600 million years it just seems to be unfeasibly unlikely. I guess mathematically it could just about have happened, but it seems so incredibly improbable that it's surely a more feasible conclusion to say an intelligent being typed out the 3.4 billion letter word. To conclude that there is and there was life because God said, let there be. And there was. Now, all of this to say, and, I can, and some of you will be loving us and scribbling away and others of you have zoned out long ago. All of this to say, none of this debate should be a barrier, I don't think, to believe in God. It's possible to be a Christian, hold a number of different views about evolution and creation and so forth. I really don't think that it's the main, the main thing. Like, If Christians are disagreeing about this stuff, And I'm not sure that anybody who's at the beginning of exploring Christianity, I don't think necessarily it's the best place to start. Because what Christians in all their different shapes and sizes and shades over history are agreed on is the central tenets of the Christian faith, not least the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. That is the place I would say to go first. Go to Jesus first, explore his life explore the significance of his death, explore whether he really did rise again. Because if that's true, if he did rise again, that's the game changer that shifts everything. Everything else has to come in line with that. So explore Jesus first. Keep asking the how questions, absolutely. I never thought I would enjoy, as a kind of funny sportsman historian hybrid, I never thought I would enjoy asking these how questions of how this whole thing came to, came to work. It is fascinating. Keep asking those questions, absolutely. But in exploring Jesus, we also get to ask perhaps even bigger layers of questions. We can find even deeper layers of explanations to the questions about the who and the why, not even just the how. And that's our final question for this morning. What about the why and what about the who? There's one phrase in the Bible that I think crystallizes the decision that we have over those vital questions of why are we here and is there a who behind that? It's the verse we read this morning. It's the first three letters, first three words, sorry, of Genesis. In the beginning. In the beginning, dot, 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 heavens and the earth. I think it all boils down to an option, really. Is that sentence, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth through various mechanisms? Or is that sentence, in the beginning, was mass energy and everything, everything followed from that due to chance and time and necessity. Is it in the beginning was God and he spoke a word and everything followed? Or is it in the beginning was mass energy and everything followed? I think it boils down to that question. You see, for me, I, I go back to this, this word. The word on the beach, Kingston on the beach. Who wrote that? How do we know someone wrote that. Someone was sending a message. So consider again the human genetic code, a 3.4 billion letter word written in perfect order on every single one of your human cells. The chances of that happening by chance are surely infinitesimally small. And the Bible, I think indeed logic, tells us that there was a who, there was a who behind that 3.4 billion letter word. In the New Testament, the apostle John He also begins his book with the same three words, in the beginning. And he writes, I think, beautifully. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory glory as of to the only son from the father full of grace and truth you see genesis tells us that god wrote a word that he wrote a word a message into the fabric of creation and he wrote it in all kinds of ways there are all kinds of words all kinds of clues in creation not least in beauty and in creativity and in order but there's a special clue in the pinnacle of his creation human beings this 3.4 billion letter word that he wrote in us. And then John, in this passage, tells us something even more remarkable. He tells us that God then wrote himself into the human story. The original word didn't just speak and make creation happen. The word intervened and wrote himself into the story. The word became part of the story. The word who became matter, sorry, the word who made matter became matter. The word who made human beings became a human being. The word who was who made and created was unmade and uncreated on the cross. And when it's when you believe that, when you believe that, that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross, in that sense he was unmade and uncreated for you, then I think you have the answer to the question, why am I here? I think it's there. You're here because originally, however many billions of years ago, the Word spoke and acted. You're here because then the Word wrote you into the story. And you're here because the Word later on wrote himself into the story as a human being. You're here because you're loved specifically, wonderfully, perfectly. Ask Jamie and the band to come and join us and help us to respond by singing. And we're going to sing a very specific song. For a couple of thousand years, I think the church has known the real value of corporately speaking out the tenets of the Christian faith, or the creed, as it's often called. And it's done this all kinds of ways through the centuries, not least through music. And uh, the song that Jamie's chosen is just that it's the creed set to music. And so I think our response this morning, wherever you're at, whether you're at, whether your head's just buzzing with lots of ideas or whether you didn't find out your cup of tea, I think the response is relatively clear this morning in the sense of if you believe, as many of us do, in the Word, the Word that was God, the Word that was with God at creation, the Word that became flesh and died and rose for us, Jesus Christ, then I'd encourage you to sing this creedal song out with passion and in faith. Declare truth to yourself and to your church. It's a really wonderful thing to do. And if you've been exploring, or you're at the beginning of exploring the gospel, of exploring Christ, and you've come to a place where by now you're ready to say, I don't have all my ducks in a row. I don't have all my answers. I'm still wondering about seven days and dinosaurs and hypocritical Christians. But I do know this. I do believe in Jesus. I believe in him. And what he has accomplished for me on the cross and through the resurrection. And I think this is a brilliant song to use to speak out that belief, to speak out that statement and use this song to begin your story of following him and to join many of us in continuing to follow and explore him. And if that's not where you're at this morning, that's that's fine. We love the fact that you're here and you're exploring and you're asking these questions. We're so pleased that you're with us. I think you'll find these words helpful as well. You can use these words to reflect both on what you've heard and what it is that ultimately Christianity believes and is about. So I'd say use these words to reflect and continue your exploration. Why is it that Christians now for centuries have sung these very words in faith and in hope? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray the words that we're going to sing and then we'll sing or reflect on them together. So shall we stand? words or the prayer goes like this it should be on the screen behind me our father everlasting the all creating one God almighty through your Holy Spirit conceiving Christ the Son Jesus our Savior we believe in God our Father we believe in Christ the Son we believe in the Holy Spirit our God is three in one we believe in the resurrection that we will rise again for we believe in the name of Jesus Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness, you rose in glorious life, forever seated high.